Wow. <laughs> I kind of just want to go back to praying. And then to come out of that and in Christ alone my hope is found. <laughs> it's been a good morning already. Thank you. Turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find one under a chair in front of you. And I think it's on page 1003 or something like that, 1004. We've been on that page for a while. What should we say then? Oh, I'm sorry. Well, what, what we should say is hear the word of God. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. You see, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, look, I'm, I'm putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and in a rock to trip over. And the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. See, they're ignorant of the righteousness of God and, and they attempted to establish their own righteousness. They, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Messiah is the end of the law resulting in righteousness for all who believe. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you this morning because... We, we can't understand anything rightly in your word on our own. And so, of course, we ask for help. And I'm so grateful that, you know, just like if we would sit, sit down with a good friend or, or with a mom or, or with our father, you know, wrestling with something, and if we asked them for help, they, they would be so eager to to get in there and help us. You're a father like that. And you want us to understand your word this morning. And so help us. Help everyone in this room and everyone on that live stream that is watching and, and help me if there's something I didn't understand correctly that is in, this, in these notes, then take that away and give me the right understanding even as I speak for the sake of your people and for your glory. 
And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are continuing our study of Paul's letter to the Romans. We've summed up the letter previously with this one sentence, stating that the Apostle Paul's good news reveals God's righteousness, that's chapters 1 through 4, creates a new humanity, that's chapters 5 through 8, fulfills God's promises to Israel, that's chapters 9 through 11, and empowers a transformed and united church, that's chapters 12 to 16. Over the last couple of months, we've been unpacking that third phrase, that Paul's good news does, in fact, fulfill God's promises to Israel. And and to clarify the connections that, that flow along this sentence from phrase to phrase, the promises that we're talking about are connected to that bit about God's righteousness and the creation of a new humanity. It is his promise that those things would be true for Israel and through them, for the world, that they would be made right and made new. And the whole, the whole reason that he needs, needs to take time in his letter on this bit is that it seemed that the unbelief of so many Jews were, was calling that promise of God into question. It seemed that maybe his news about Jesus wasn't so good after all. But what we've seen, I, I hope you've seen, what we've seen over these past few weeks, I think, in Romans 9, chapter 6 to 29, is Paul doing a remarkably good job of defending and explaining the story of God's sovereignty in salvation throughout the course of history. He has made clear, I believe, that God always had a plan in a purpose in how he would bring about the rescue of the Israelites, and for that matter, all Gentiles. And that it is in the good news of Messiah Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. That's what's accomplished the promises, the making right and the making new. Promises made, promises kept by a sovereign God. So that now as we arrive at Romans chapter 9, verse 30, Paul turns our attention, if you will, from the sovereign plans of God to the human responsibility in response to those sovereign plans as a way to explain what's going on. And Paul does this by way of a question, a practice that we've gotten kind of used to by now from Paul. (laughs) He says, what should we say then? It's the kind of question that gives Paul a chance to step back and take a a, a broader look at at the picture of what's been going on, and and this time from the perspective of humanity's response to this sovereign God. Another way to state this question could be, how can we sum this up? God bless you. Verse 30. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness righteousness. Gentiles. Namely, the righteousness that comes from faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of 
the law. We've probably all experienced that person who didn't study for two minutes and they aced the exam after you studied for hours and hours and hours only to fail. And you're like, man, I hate that person. Hate that guy. Why has he always got to get A's? I, I was the A guy in class. I mean, how frustrating is that, right? <laughs> or maybe if we use Paul's metaphor here, this metaphor of pursuit that he's talking about, it's that person who doesn't even train <laughs> for the marathon. <laughs> like, and they just like, you know, skate through 26 miles and you trained and trained and trained and you tapped out at mile six. That's the irony that Paul is pointing out here. Gentiles weren't even pursuing righteousness. They weren't even pursuing it. They weren't looking to do good or be good. This is something that we can relate to, can we not? Are we not surrounded by a, a culture that isn't even really pursuing the righteousness of God? They have no interest in that. And then Paul says, they became good <laughs> because of faith in the Messiah. In contrast, Israel is over there spending hours and hours and hours studying and training and training in the law as a way to achieve the righteousness that they so desperately desired, the righteousness of God, but they didn't achieve it. They didn't pass the exam, couldn't complete the race, failed to attain their goal. Why is that? Verse 32, he asks. Especially when it seems that, that all these Gentiles just kind of fell into righteousness. Well, it's because they did not pursue it, verse 32, by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled. They stumbled too. But they stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, quoting Isaiah, Look, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, and, and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. In other words, achieving the promise of God to be made right, to be made new, was never ever meant to come about by human effort or work, but by faith in Jesus to accomplish that. And Paul explains that the reason why so many Israelites, not all, but a majority of them, couldn't see that clearly was because of a stumbling block that had been placed there by God. So he, again, even while talking about human responsibility, infuses the sovereignty of God into this. God put a stumbling stone there. And the way that Paul now wants to explain this to us is by quoting a couple of texts from Isaiah there in verses 32 and 33. The context of which, right, we know this, we know this because we're good Bible studiers, that when we see a quotation in the New Testament of an Old Testament text, what is that? It's a bookmark, and we got to go back, and we have to see the context. Paul, why are you quoting that? What are you meaning to communicate for us? What are we supposed to see and learn? And if we go back to Isaiah, we see the prophet using in the words of Frank Thielman, using a metaphor of a stone in his description 
of two aspects of Yahweh's intervention in the affairs of his people. So, so Paul goes back and says, I remember this. I remember in Isaiah, Yahweh doing something like this before. He intervened in the affairs of his people, and he did it in terms of a stone. The first aspect of this intervention is pictured as a foundation stone that would bring judgment to Israel at the time, their corrupt leaders who were defying Yahweh by trusting in their own ability to achieve security. So they were going to foreign nations instead of trusting in God. And so he placed a stone in their way to try and get in the heads to confront Israel's corrupt leaders. Because what were they trying to do? They were trying to save themselves. They were trying to save themselves from the danger of a foreign nation. And even in that bit in Isaiah 10 and 9, even in that bit, there is this little remnant that is still trusting in Yahweh, even while leaders are trying to lead them astray. The other aspect of Yahweh's intervention in Isaiah that this stone metaphor is talking about, Paul goes back and he, and he sees these words, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, literally scandalon. It's, it's a scandal. The stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to Israel's leaders who are defying Yahweh in this way. And, and, and it's placed there because what God is doing, if, if they would just stop short in their defiance of doing things their own way in their own efforts, anxiously running around, trying to do anything they can to save themselves, they would not be put to shame because they would trust in Yahweh. But they won't. And so they don't trust in Yahweh. And Paul brings both of those aspects of Yahweh's intervention in Israel's past to show how Jesus, this is brilliant, look at this, you guys, to show how Jesus as the Messiah is Yahweh's intervention in their present to get them to trust in him. Do you see? Verse 33, the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Jesus Messiah is the one who has been sovereignly placed in the path of Israel for judgment and salvation. Jesus is the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, his person and work, literally a scandal as a means of judgment, in particular on the religious leaders of Israel, that is actually sought. They're seeking to keep his laws. But in that pursuit, they're rejecting God because they're trusting in their own ability to do it, to keep themselves safe. And for a small remnant of Israelites, Jesus is this intervention of Yahweh that leads to blessing and righteousness and new creation because they place their trust in him. Paul, Paul is making it so clear, is he not? Israelites were so focused to keep, they were so focused on this objective to keep the law as a means of righteousness and life that they missed what God was doing. They missed it. They were pursuing that goal and running hard. And instead of seeing God's intervention in Messiah as the fulfillment and goal and end of what they were seeking, like, have you ever done this and you've been hiking? Uh, 
right? You, either there's, there's two, two things that can happen in hiking. Uh, either you're like me far too often and you've got this goal, right? Like you've got your all trails up and, and you, you did this hike in about two hours last time. So, man, I'm doing it in an hour and 45 minutes this time. So my objective, like, I got to get there, and I'm focused on the objective. Or you're, you're better than me, and you're actually enjoying the hike a little bit, and you're, like, looking around at the mountains and the, in the valley. And what can happen when you're, like, looking like this? <laughs> you just trip right over a rock on all these rocky paths that we have, right? And that's what they were doing. They were so focused, like, this is the objective. It's the law. I'm going to keep that. I'm going to be righteous, and I'm going to save myself. And he's like, Jesus, right? Here, Jesus. And they, right over him. They fell flat on their faces. They failed to realize that this was the purpose of the law all along, to show that they couldn't do it on their own and that they would need a Messiah. (laughs) If you're like this, I just, I'm going to look at you and say today, you know, you just might need God. (laughs) Instead of believing on him and not being put to shame, they stumble. They're offended by Jesus and they reject him to their shame. I love Paul because even in this, I mean, don't, we're not just studying logical propositions here, family. These are real people. Remember, he, remember the beginning of chapter nine, who, whom he loves, that he wish he could trade, trade places with. And even in this, even while God mercies whom he will and hardens whom he will, even as he intervenes and places stumbling stones to those running hard while accepting runners crossing the line through faith when they didn't even realize they were running a race. All of it is God's sovereign plan. Even in this, prayer. Asking. Pleading. Verse one, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God Concerning them is for their salvation. Why would Paul pray if God is sovereign? Why? Why would he do that? Because he's showing us that we don't know the whole story. We don't know all that God is up to or how. Over and over in the Bible, we see stories that the prayers of God's people are the means by which he brings his purposes about. So it makes sense to act on our desire to pray desires that are likely, can we say, are placed in our hearts by God in the first place. Thus it is that Paul talks to God about his longings and hopes for those trapped in unbelief and then describes further some of the cause of that unbelief and while they're trapped in it. Verse 2, I can testify about them that they have zeal for God but not according to knowledge. Now note carefully, Paul does not say here that zeal is bad. Zeal. It's kind of a word that we don't use very often anymore but it means 
fervency or, or passion, a, a deep concern for something, a devotion to something. Zeal is a good thing, <laughs> especially when it's aimed at God, right? I mean, consider the world-changing, soul-rescuing, people-transforming events that have taken place in history because men and women had a passion for God, had a zeal for God to make him known. They were fervent about seeing his glory displayed. Like, we can all think of the stories, right? Zeal's a good thing. But where zeal goes wonky where it results in devastating consequences, such as was the case with so many Jews in Paul's day, is when that zeal does not happen according to knowledge. And we've all seen this too. Okay, I I said I needed help today, but... (laughs) That wasn't what I had in mind, but God knows... When zeal does not happen according to knowledge, it becomes a dangerous thing. It becomes a destructive thing. It becomes something quite apart from God and what he desires. And and instead of righteousness and new creation comes unrighteousness and death. And this is something that Paul is intimately aware of, right? We can't forget the man who's talking and writing this. Paul himself had a zeal for God that was not according to knowledge that led him to killing and imprisoning the followers of Jesus before he was radically transformed. He knows whereof he speaks. He knows how dangerous zeal can be without knowledge. And what is at the core of this zeal without knowledge that causes them to pursue the law as a means to righteousness? Verse 3, because they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and they attempted to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to God's righteousness because Messiah is the end of the law for righteousness, therefore resulting in righteousness to everyone who believes. You see, the kind of ignorance that Paul is talking about here isn't the kind of like, I have no idea. I don't think it's that kind of ignorance. It's a kind of ignorance that has, has a willful edge to it. In a sense, they've decided to be ignorant about the true way to righteousness. They've hardened themselves in that. I think that's what's going on. I think we find justification for that conclusion, especially when we look at chapter 10, verse 21, when he describes their actions as disobedience and defiance. It appears they've hardened themselves in the belief that the law was a viable way to attain righteousness in life. Rather than submitting to God's righteousness presented to them freely in the Messiah, Jesus. And instead of accepting him and bowing the knee to him, they attempted to keep the law and thus establish their own righteousness and stumbling in this way over the Messiah Instead of submitting to the Messiah, they missed the goal, the end, the fulfillment of all of it in him. And Paul here says that the reason this is all so tragic, and it is, it's tragic when people try to save themselves instead of let God do that. 
The reason this is also tragic, the reason he prays, is because what he has discovered himself on a road to Damascus. Paul, why are you fighting against me? Paul discovered that the Messiah was the goal all along. And the end of the law for his righteousness resulting in righteousness because he believed in Jesus. I think this is why we still stumble over Jesus. I think so often while we, why we stumble over Jesus is why we're offended. Why, why are people offended by Jesus? I mean, think about that. They're offended by Jesus. Because Jesus is our only good. He's our only good. He undermines all of our self-righteousness. He undermines our authority and control in saving ourselves. He undermines our being the hero of our own story. He undermines being determiners of our salvation in both the guidelines for how that happens and the energy, ability, and effort and works to carry it out. Righteousness by any other means than Messiah will end in no righteousness at all. There is no other good than Jesus. Jesus is our only good. Could you say that with me? Jesus is our only good. Our only good. And sometimes we trip over him without even realizing it. Sometimes we don't even think through how our holding on to anything other than Jesus, our law-keeping, our good deeds, our self-determination of what defines a right standing with God, any time we do that, that is a rejection of Jesus. And I mean for that to sting a little. For you and for me. We have to fight trusting in anything other than Jesus for good. Any self-evaluation other than Jesus. Because when we act that way, when you try and grab hold of anything else, we're attempting to establish our own righteousness. So how can we sum this up? Let me give you a paraphrase of this text. It's in your service guide. All those people who didn't seem, listen to this, all those people who didn't seem interested in what God was doing actually embraced what God was doing as he straightened out their lives. <laughs> Come on, that's beautiful. That's the good news. I want to see that happen over and over again. I want to see Gentiles falling over backwards without even knowing it. They didn't seem interested and they embraced what God was doing as he straightened out their lives. And Israel, who seemed so interested in reading and talking about God was doing, missed it. How could they miss it? Because instead of trusting God, they took over. They were absorbed in what they themselves were doing. They were so absorbed in their God projects. Huh. 
that they didn't notice God right in front of them like a huge rock in the middle of the road. And so they stumbled into him and went sprawling. Isaiah, again, gives us the metaphor for pulling this together. Careful, I've put a huge stone on the road to Mount Zion, a stone that you can't get around, but the stone is me. If you're looking for me, you'll find me on the way, not in the way. Believe me, friends, says Paul. All I want for Israel is what's best for Israel. Salvation, nothing less. I want it with all my heart, and I pray to God for it all the time. I readily admit that the Jews are impressively energetic regarding God, but they are doing everything exactly backwards. (laughs) Oh, man, you're working so hard. You're doing such a good, you're going the wrong way. They don't seem to realize that this comprehensive setting things right that is salvation is God's business. And a most flourishing business it is. Right across the street, they set up their own salvation shops and noisily hawk their wares. After all these years of refusing to really deal with God on his terms, insisting instead on making their own deals, they have nothing to show for it. The law was intended to simply get us ready for Messiah, who then puts everything right for those who trust him to do it. They trust him to do it. The Bible tells us about itself that it is as sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense laying us open to listen and obey. Nothing and no one is impervious to God's word. We cannot get away from it, no matter what. When I hear Paul talk about the unbelief of Israel, this tragic unbelief because they're trying to save themselves, I'm just, I'm cut deeply. You see, I grew up in a religious system that created in me a religious belief that I could do it. That if I just read my Bible enough, if I worked hard enough, if I looked good enough, if I followed all of the rules, whoever was forming them, myself or others, if I looked like everybody else in school, if I just did what they did, that I could be right with God. And I so desperately wanted to be right with God. I so desperately wanted him to say I was okay and that he loved me. And I just kept failing and failing and failing and failing. And it's a remarkable thing, pursuing self-righteousness. It creates a lot of anger. Because you project on other people. If I can't be, if I can't meet that standard, well then I'll make sure you do. And if if I'm tired of beating up on myself for missing the mark, well why not beat up on you? creates hardened, angry, bitter, unhappy people. So self-righteous people generally are. When I thought about what Paul was trying to do to 
to cut me open, to cut maybe you open. And we're, I think we're all this in varying degrees. I couldn't escape my mind going to when Jesus himself addressed this. Because Jesus himself addressed this. In this beautiful telling of a story, Jesus himself places himself as a stumbling stone to people who are listening to a story. We, we find the story in Luke chapter 15. There were a lot of men, I, I've put it in your, in your service guide. There were a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation hanging around Jesus, listening intently. The unrighteous people. Let's call them Gentiles maybe. The Pharisees and religion scholars were not pleased. Not at all. Because he's not following the rules. They growled. <laughs> growled. He takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. Who does he think he is? Their growling triggered a story. There once was a man who had two sons. Now, many of you are familiar with this story. You may know it as the story of the prodigal son. But what Tim Keller helped me see is that it is really a story about two sons, two lost sons, two sons who are lost in very different ways, but both of them utterly lost. And it is a story about their father. And what Jesus is doing in the story is putting everyone around him, men and women of doubtful reputation, Pharisees and religion scholars, and God into the story. And Keller's main thesis is that it is actually God who is the prodigal one. Prodigal meaning defined as recklessly extravagant. Having spent everything. Because it's the father in the story who displays actually the most reckless behavior, throwing grace and forgiveness and acceptance around like he's got all kinds of it. I'm not going to read the whole story because many of you are familiar with it. It's there in your service guide in paraphrased form. I want you to, hopefully you'll read and ponder it later. But I want to give you some of Keller's observations. Hang with me here. Because I believe that it's connected to what Paul is on about in Romans. And it's what confronted me years ago and continues to confront and guide me today. I think the penny of the good news in my life dropped when I understood what Keller is saying about this story. In Act 1, in the person of the younger brother, Jesus gives us a depiction of sin that anyone would recognize. The young man humiliates his family. He lives a self-indulgent, dissolute life. He's totally out of control, alienated from the Father who represents God in the story. Anyone who lives like that would be cut off from God, as all the listeners in the parable would have agreed. They, all these people of doubtful reputation get that. In Act 2, the focus is on the elder brother. He is fastidiously obedient to his father and by analogy to the commands of God. He is completely under control and quite self-disciplined. So we have two sons, one bad by conventional standards and one good, yet both are alienated from their father. The father has to go out and invite each of them to come into the feast of his love. So there's not one lost son in the parable. There's two lost sons. Act two comes to an unthinkable conclusion, Keller writes. 
Jesus, the storyteller, deliberately leaves the elder brother in his alienated state. The bad son enters into the father's feast, but the good son will not. The lover of prostitutes is saved, but the man of moral conformity is still lost. We can almost hear the Pharisees gasp as they come to the end of the story. It was the complete reversal of everything they'd ever been taught. Jesus doesn't even leave it at that. It gets more shocking. Why doesn't the elder brother go in? He himself gives the reason. Because I've never disobeyed you. What? You're not going into a feast because you've never disobeyed him? The elder brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. It is not his sins that create the barrier between him and his father. It's the pride he has in his moral record. It's not his wrongdoing, but his righteousness that is keeping him from sharing in the feast of his father, seeking to establish their own righteousness, wrote Paul. You see, both sons rebelled. One did so by being very bad, and the other rebelled by being extremely good. And both are alienated from their father's heart. And both were lost. Which means, writes Keller, that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by keeping them all diligently. It's a shocking message from Paul and from Jesus. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God by trying to be your own savior. You can be as a self-righteous person every bit as lost as a profligate, immoral, horrible, in your eyes, sinner. Why? Because sin is not just breaking the rules, but putting yourself in the place of God as savior and ruler and Lord, and judge, and king. There are two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. One is by breaking all the moral laws and setting your own course, and one is by keeping all the moral laws and by being very, very good. So which brother are you? Are you the younger brother just running? from him? Or are you the older brother Pharisee that, you know, what Keller goes on to write is that in these two scenarios, it's actually the self-righteous person that is in a far more dangerous and desperate position because they don't even know they're lost. And that just cut me to the core the first time I read The Prodigal God by Tim Keller, and it saved me, or <laughs> it's saving me. <laughs> Hi, my name is Matthew, and I'm a recovering older brother. <laughs> Hi, Matt. You can say, Hi, Matthew. <laughs> Please be patient with me. You'll see this in me. I hope we get to spend the next 20 or 30 years together. You're going to see this in me. My wife sees it in me. We have to let go 
of our own righteous deeds. There is so much freedom for us in Jesus' family. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Rest in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Rest. Let's do that together. Can we do that together? Let's help each other with that, shall we? I was supposed to call the worship team up about three minutes ago. <laughs> worship team, would you come up? We're going to sing some more songs to this saving, amazing, Messiah-providing God. Let's stand. Let's sing.